John chapter 18, starting at verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews didn't enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If we were not a criminal, they replied, we would would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words that Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What's truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. 
We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This is God's word. Thanks, John, for reading. And uh, let me say a good morning to you from me. I'm Simon, one of the ministers here. We're working our way in these few weeks through the last few chapters of John's Gospel. So last week we looked at the arrest of Jesus. Today is his trial. Next week uh, on Good Friday, look at his crucifixion. And then Easter Sunday, his resurrection. And just as we were having the baptism earlier, I was thinking, the very same Jesus who so freely welcomes Sam into his family is the same Jesus who was treated that way, who was taken to his arrest and his trial and death that we're looking at. How differently was he treated by the world that he made in comparison to the way he now treats us? Just a thought. Let us pray before we look at this chapter. Our loving Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these Bibles that we hold in our hands that speak so powerfully, so uh, dramatically of all that took place 2,000 years ago. And Lord, as we engage with this passage now, help us to, to hear you speaking through it. Help us to listen to your voice. Help us to be changed by it. Help us to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we've got a, a legal drama in front of us, obviously, in this passage. And I'm guessing that some of us here this morning are familiar with the inside of a courtroom. Uh, I don't mean that in a, uh, a bad way, necessarily. Um, maybe you've got legal expertise of some kind, I don't know. But uh, Christians are, by definition, forgiven sinners. So uh, wherever you sat in the courtroom, if you've had a bad experience, that's okay. Uh, that's the family that Sam's joined this morning, a family of forgiven sinners. That's a great one to be part of. Personally, I've only once been inside a courtroom where there was a, a trial in session, and uh, thankfully, it was just a couple of years ago, was a friend of mine who was doing a law conversion course, and he was interested to go in and sit at the back of the Royal Courts of Justice. So I wandered along in there with him. We sat at the back of a couple of appeal sessions, and uh, I have to say, I was quite impressed. I'd never seen it all in action before, and uh, the efficiency with which the judges were able to work and uh, master very quickly a whole load of very refined details and uh, get everything together and come to a conclusion that seemed to me, from my very untrained perspective, um, impartial, fair. Uh, I was pretty impressed, and that was reassuring. Um, But you have to say right from the outset that words like impartiality and fairness and accuracy have no place whatsoever in this trial that we're reading of in uh, John 18 and 19. Uh, Just Pilate, playing the role of uh, judge, famously uh, declares repeatedly that he believes Jesus to be innocent. He's fully convinced that Jesus has done nothing wrong, let alone anything deserving the death penalty. And yet when all of the questioning is over, despite those strong personal convictions that Pilate himself reached, he sends Jesus to be crucified. I think you'd probably have to say that it's the single most notorious miscarriage of justice in history. And I want us to think hard this morning about why Pilate would do such a thing and whether we could, in a sense, be in danger of doing something similar ourselves. Is it possible that we too could potentially come face to face with the truth about Jesus as Pilate did 
and yet utterly fail to act on it as he should have done and as we perhaps should do. To, to nick a phrase from Al Gore, maybe it's an inconvenient truth that Pilate came across as he was face to face with Jesus. Faced with an inconvenient truth, people might walk away uh, or wash their hands of it as Pilate did or um, bury their heads in the sand. And I want to suggest that the, the issue at stake in this trial, the identity of Jesus, is even more significant than something like climate change. I would dare to say that even if everything that Al Gore predicted came true, um, I, I'd still say the same. So this is uh, a legal drama that, that really pulls us in. So we need to take it a bit more seriously than, um, I don't know if you're addicts of law and order, which apparently uh, had its 20th season last year, um, 20th and last season, uh, or Silk. Uh, I've not seen it, but apparently that's the latest BBC drama uh, that is highly rated by barristers for describing the life of a barrister. Um, certainly we need to take this more seriously than, uh, I don't know, what you're willing to admit to watching, the Ellingwood Beals and the CSIs and the Ron of the Bailey or whatever it might be. Um, all of those rely on the build-up of suspense as you go through the trial. And then at the end, after the verdict has come in, you go away with either that fantastic feeling of satisfaction when you know that justice has been done, or just the horrible frustration or the bitter taste that's left in the mouth when you see uh, a miscarriage of justice, that sense of outrage. Um, and that's where it ends in some of those programs and in this particular trial. But this trial is not just about entertaining us uh, or having a poignant story about a, a corrupt judge. It's actually an invitation for us to follow Pilate as he tries to reach a verdict on Jesus, I think. We'll look at what Pilate saw, and then we'll look at what he did in the light of what he saw. And we're going to end up by saying, if you see what Pilate saw, don't do what Pilate did. Uh, in one sense, the whole of John's gospel that we're looking at is written so that we can weigh up the evidence about Jesus and uh, reach a personal verdict with him. Uh, John, the writer, actually tells us his, reading for, his reason for writing the gospel uh, later on in chapter 20, verse 31. I think we can see it up on the screen, hopefully. Um, he writes, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's John's purpose for us as we read his gospel and this section in particular uh, to show us Jesus and help us to believe in him. And here we're doing it by following Pontius Pilate as he sees Jesus and listens to him. And actually in the, the, the action of the account itself, in the drama of it, we get to follow Pilate very literally as he sort of walks back and forth. Uh, so have a look at how it all begins in verse 28 of chapter 18. If you've uh, turned away from it, it's on uh, page 1087 in the Bibles. Verse 28 of chapter 18. Verse 28. Then the Jews, and uh, just by the way, when it says the Jews, that's shorthand for the Jewish religious leaders of the time. I don't want us to get hung up on that. Uh, don't forget that Jesus, John, the writer of the gospel, all the original disciples were ethnically Jews themselves. So we don't need to be worried about anti-Semitism or anything like that here um, or elsewhere in the Bible for that matter. Um, so put that aside. This is shorthand for the religious leaders of the Jews at the time. 
those particular Jews led Jesus, uh, in verse 28, from Caiaphas, who was the high priest, to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them. Now, do you get the picture? For various reasons, uh, the Jewish leaders didn't want to go into the palace of Pontius Pilate. He was the Roman governor. He was uh, a Gentile, a non-Jew. And uh, so they've gathered outside his palace. And so every time Pilate wants to speak to them, he has to go outside. Uh, I don't know, stand at the door or on the balcony or something like that. And every time he speaks to Jesus, he goes back inside his palace. And it's, as you go through the palace, he, he goes out and goes back in and comes out and goes back in. It, it's as if you're watching him in a documentary, sort of being followed by a handicam with a sort of puffing and panting cameraman, chasing him around, trying to work out what on earth is going on as he goes between these two locations. Uh, and the action stays with Pilate all the way through this trial. So we're seeing it through his eyes. And it's important to recognize that because uh, this trial, in a sense, is the climax of a confrontation between Jesus and these Jewish authorities that has been building and building and building all the way through the gospel. And for that reason, Pilate might seem like just a a bit part, just a kind of cameo from a a Roman governor at this moment. Um, But John wants us to see this through his eyes because Pilate was an outsider. He was new to the discussion. He he wasn't a Jew. He was no friend of the Jewish authorities. Uh, What history has come down to us tells us that there was no love lost between uh, Pilate, the the Roman, and the Jews running Judea at the time. Um, So uh, we know Pilate often did his best to antagonize those leaders. So we might think he's going to support Jesus rather than uh, them. And another thing about Pilate, he's also very real. Uh, This might help you to know that in 1961, uh, this stone that I've put a picture of on the left um, was uh, dug up in Caesarea Maritima on the coast of what is now the nation of Israel um, with Pilate's name inscribed in the middle. Um, It looks like the word splat when you see it from a distance, but if you look a bit closer, there's a sort of I between the P and the L. And then the, the, the V is actually a U. So you can see Pilatus, and that's part of a, an inscription. And that's interesting because up until 1961, a lot of scholars uh, who were of a very skeptical frame of mind had been saying, well, we're not really even sure if he existed. Well, they've stopped saying that. Um, Pilate was very, very real. Um, so even the skeptics agree he was very real. So let's talk, take a walk through the trial with this very, very real Roman governor. And uh, a couple of things that Pilate sees. What is it that Pilate sees? And the first thing is that he sees Jesus himself, and then he sees the Jewish authorities. I want to look at those in turn. So uh, Pilate saw Jesus, the heavenly king, who speaks the truth. Now, it's ironic here that Jesus is the one person in this narrative that doesn't look remotely kingly. He's the bound prisoner. Uh, Pilate and the Jews are the ones wielding the power uh, with their titles and their status and I guess their robes and their thrones. And yet as they they kind of verbally joust with each other through this trial, Jesus, in a sense, comes out on top. Um, Have a look at verse 29. Pilate asks them, he's come out of the palace, uh, and asks the Jews, what charges are you bringing against this man? 
And the Jews are a little bit put out by this uh, because uh, at their request, Pilate's already supplied soldiers to help them arrest him. And so presumably he knows why they want to arrest him. So uh, they reply with a bit of annoyance in verse 30. If he were not a criminal, uh, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Annoyed, but rather cagey. What is this uh, uh, trial about? And Pilate says, uh, take him yourself, judge him by your own law. And the Jews say, but we have no right to execute anyone. Now, officially, that was true. Uh, Death penalties couldn't be imposed without the say-so of the Roman governor. Um, But you might be thinking, what about all those stories of people being stoned to death? Uh, uh, Well, that's kind of the unofficial mob violence aspect. Why didn't the Jewish leaders resort to that? Well, hard to say, but maybe they were still afraid of the popular support that Jesus had. Uh, wanted to deflect blame for his death onto the Romans, something like that. Well, all of this toing and froing seems like a bit of a minor explanatory detail until you hit verse 32. Verse 32, this happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Jesus has said several times throughout John's gospel that his death would involve being lifted up from the earth. Kind of an enigmatic way of saying it, but uh, here's an example in uh, John chapter 12, 32 and 33. Jesus says, But I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. So it's a turn of phrase indicating crucifixion. Jesus is describing that he's going to be crucified. He's not going to be stoned to death. He's not going to die any other way. This apparent jousting between the powers shows that Jesus is the one who's getting his way. The one in control, despite all the appearances, is Jesus. And when we looked at his arrest last week, we saw that very, very clearly. And it continues to be the case, even now during his trial. King Jesus is in control of his destiny. And when Pilate begins this cross-examination of Jesus, he asks him about being a king. Uh, He says uh, in verse uh, 33, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, Jesus has got to be careful about how he replies to that one. He can't easily say just yes or no. Uh, If he just says yes without explanation, then that's instant sentencing for treason. Um, But if he says no, he's, he's not telling the truth about himself. So he answers by trying to help Pilate to to think through what's going on in verse 34. He says to Pilate, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? In other words, Pilate, watch out. These, These Jewish leaders have said things to you about me and they may have given you completely the wrong impression. Pilate responds, uh, maybe with anger, maybe with resignation. Am I a Jew? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Now Jesus begins to explain what kind of a king he actually is. He's a heavenly king. So verse 36. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. In other words, Pilate, look, understand that I am a king, says Jesus, but not the kind of king that my accusers would have you believe. 
I'm not the kind of king that's coming here with an army to try and throw you out of your palace uh, and overthrow the, the Roman Empire. I'm not here to wage war with Caesar. That's not primarily my, my, my role. Uh, Jesus is saying, look around, look for my army. <laughs> look what happened when I got arrested. Did anyone try to, to, to stop people? There was one guy, Peter, who, who tried, but I, I stopped him from, from doing anything. I wouldn't let my disciples prevent my arrest. Jesus' kingdom is not in a kind of direct, immediate political competition with Rome in that sense, as if it was just another national government or a kind of wannabe empire to overthrow uh, the Roman Empire. It's not that his kingdom is smaller or irrelevant to those political kingdoms. Jesus' kingdom is bigger than that. Uh, Jesus, according to John's gospel, is, is God in human flesh, the one who made the universe, uh, the one who will reign over billions from every tribe and every nation and every generation at the end of time. We're not talking about a small competitor of a kingdom. We're talking about a huge kingdom that submerges them all, in a sense. And Pilate begins to see the point in verse 37. He says, you are a king then. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now, did you get that last sentence? It's pretty extraordinary. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Imagine what kind of a reaction you and I might get if we wandered around saying that kind of thing. Say to your colleagues, say to your family, your parents, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. If you and I were to say that, that would be astoundingly, well, self-assured, but more than that, arrogant, incredibly arrogant. It would be for any normal human being. When, when human beings start talking like that, then we start calling them manipulative megalomaniacs, power-crazy dictators, um, cult leaders who are, who are trying to control people. Pilate, interestingly, doesn't accuse Jesus of any of that. He doesn't say to Jesus, you sound like some kind of self-deluded madman, or what are you doing? You're a dangerous manipulator with a a kind of ridiculously high self-opinion if you think all truth comes from you. He doesn't even suggest that Jesus is wrong in this. For a moment, he throws up his hands and says, what is truth? In a kind of this is too big for me kind of way, and um, we'll come back to what he's saying there. But immediately after that, he goes outside and declares Jesus innocent. So verse 38, uh, what is truth, Pilate said. With that, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. So somehow Pilate has looked at this man in chains before him and found himself convinced or at least unsettled by these enormous claims that he seems to be making. So um, Pilate then goes about um, a ploy to try to get Jesus released. So he goes out to the Jews and he says, well, don't we normally have a kind of prisoner release thing this time of year? Um, Remember that little agreement? Um, You guys come to me and say, uh, remember, Pilate, uh, every year we said uh, you'd release a prisoner for us? Well, Tell you what, uh, I'm having a bit of trouble with this trial with Jesus. Why don't I give Jesus to you as my gift to you this year as the released prisoner? 
But the crowd is not remotely interested in that. And they call instead for the release of Barabbas, who's a a convicted rebel who'd committed um, treason. Uh, John's Gospel doesn't dwell on this, but here's a, a, a mini picture of a sinner, Barabbas, being set free by the death of innocent Jesus. The innocent Jesus dies in the place of the sinner. Jesus goes to his death, and Barabbas goes to his life. But Pilate is not ready to give up on trying to release Jesus. He he wants to see Jesus released, so he tries a couple of other tactics. Now, the first, uh, to our eyes, is just utterly horrific and barbaric. It seems that Pilate tries to satisfy the bloodlust of the crowd by ordering Jesus to be cruelly flogged and mocked by his soldiers. Uh, So the flogging that happens at the beginning of chapter 19 was a a vicious kind of whipping with, with spikes embedded in the whips so that Jesus would have suffered brutally horribly and would have been visibly lacerated by that um, covered in blood for all to see if you've seen those scenes from Mel Gibson's film Passion of the Christ um, I don't know if that's an over exaggeration something like that horrific image would have happened and added to that the soldiers get that crown of thorns and twist it onto his head they give him the purple robe and uh, ridicule him dress him up as a king effectively and brutalize him even further. And in that horrible-looking, mutilated state, Pilate brings him out and twice more declares him innocent before the crowd. But still it's no good. The crowd have not been sated in their demands. They still yell for death by crucifixion. In verse 7, they say, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. Now, verse 8 is very revealing about Pilate. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Pilate is afraid. He's not afraid of the crowds. At any moment, he could say the word and have Jesus crucified. That would sort the problem out for him. Presumably, he could call on a load of soldiers and get the crowd dispersed. That would sort the problem out for him. But he's afraid to do those things. Jesus has has left him feeling very unsettled. Who exactly would he be killing by crucifying Jesus? So Pilate goes back in again for a final conversation with Jesus. In verse 9 of chapter 19, Pilate wants to know, Jesus, where do you come from? Where do you come from? But after a moment's silence and a sort of angry outburst from Pilate when Jesus doesn't reply, all that Jesus will say to him in verse 11 is, Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. In other words, Pilate, you, you've, you look like you're losing your grip here. You feel like you're losing your grip. And that's absolutely right. You're not in control. You may be the governor And I may be in chains, says Jesus, but the only power you have is from above, from the Father in heaven. You only have power because it's given to you. And again, Pilate doesn't argue with Jesus. He tries to set him free in verse 12. So through Pilate's eyes, 
what are we seeing? We're seeing Jesus, a heavenly king who is speaking the truth in such a way that it it so impresses this presumably quite tough Roman politician. Over and over and over again, Pilate declares him innocent. Over and over again, he tries to get him released. Pilate is aware that he's standing in the presence of greatness. He's not entirely sure of the origin of that greatness, but if he allows Jesus to be crucified, it's flying in the face of everything that he's come to believe about Jesus during this trial. And we'll talk about why he does that in a moment. But first, there's a a second thing that Pilate sees. He sees this heavenly king who tells the truth. But there are also religious leaders who hate the truth. That's the other side. That's the the two parties that he's wandering backwards and forwards between. Having recognized the innocence of Jesus, Pilate can see the guilt of these Jewish leaders. So let's just pick out the way they interact in all of this. We saw in verse 28 that the Jews were, were keen to be clean. They wanted to be ceremonially ready for the Passover feast. And so these people wanted to be outwardly clean, outwardly right and ready uh, to meet with God for this feast, um, even as they were campaigning for this murder, this wrongful execution. More than that, they were, they were campaigning for the murder of the person that the Passover feast was all about. Now, I don't know if you uh, know from being in church or maybe from school religious studies lessons, the Passover feast was when uh, a lamb was provided by God and it would be killed in order to save the life of a person in a household uh, in Egypt when the Israelites were in Egypt. And uh, the trial of Jesus took place during this Passover festival when all around Jerusalem people were eating lamb to celebrate uh, that day when God had provided a sacrificial lamb to take the place of a a human death. Uh, A picture of the way that God would save all of his people by one person dying for the sake of everyone. And uh, the Bible in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, uh, Jesus is called the Passover lamb which has been sacrificed. So in a sense, the gathered people here are conspiring to kill the true Passover lamb in order to be outwardly ceremonially clean, in order to take part in that Passover feast that was actually pointing to Jesus. Now, of course, we've got to say God is in control and, as we saw, planned that Jesus would be sacrificed in this way by means of this murderous plot. Um, These kill Jesus and people receive life as a result. Um, But they're not to be congratulated for that, not to be congratulated for taking part in in enacting God's plan, even though it was God's plan. Verse 11 of chapter 19 makes that clear. Jesus says, the one who handed me over to you, Pilate, is guilty of a greater sin. It's probably referring to Caiaphas, the, the high priest, Jesus declares him guilty. This was meant to be the trial of Jesus, wasn't it? But it's turned out to be the trial of Caiaphas. He's been declared guilty. And his cronies, those who conspired to execute Jesus wrongfully. Jesus is saying to Pilate, look, you're new to all this. You haven't read the Bible, but these guys have. These guys bellowing outside your window for my death. They should know better. They've got the truth, but they refuse to accept it. They... They hate this truth. 
Remember how in uh, chapter 18 and verse 14, Caiaphas, the high priest, had advised that Jesus should be killed for the sake of the people. And he didn't mean that Jesus should die to give them life. He just meant that Jesus was getting too popular. And they, uh, they needed to do away with him for the sake of the stability of the nation. Uh, Caiaphas only had to talk to Jesus to discover that his kingdom was not of this world. But he wasn't interested in that. The mind of Caiaphas and these cronies of his was already made up. He hated this inconvenient truth. The lies were, were much to be preferred to the truth if it involved Jesus being the king. So Caiaphas and this cohort had no interest in listening to Pilate's declarations of Jesus' innocence. They would prefer the death of the innocent Jesus, even if it meant the release of Barabbas the rebel. They preferred to stand there and yell, crucify, crucify, in order to do away with the one who had taught them to love their enemies and who had healed so many. And finally, they... They ended up hating the truth so much that they were willing to deny everything and declare allegiance to Caesar in order to get Jesus killed. And ultimately, that was the strategy that worked on Pilate. So look at verse 12 of chapter 19. The Jews uh, kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And at the end of verse 15 over the page uh, is the final denial. We have no king but Caesar, say these Jewish leaders. So Caiaphas and his fellow religious authorities knew very well that the great hope of Israel was the return of the king. Uh, Everyone in those days was waiting for the return of the king, like the return of Aragorn to the throne of Gondor where everything would be set right. That was the great Old Testament biblical hope for restoration and life. And even in the absence of that king, God was always meant to be the king. Caesar was never the king. The Roman overlords were were loathed. And yet in order to protect their own power base, this high priest and his cohort screamed with a kind of murderous bloodlust, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar. That is what Pilate saw. That is what we see through his eyes. The king of heaven who tells the truth and the religious rulers who hate that truth. Now here's the challenge. If we see what Pilate saw, don't do what Pilate did. If like Pilate, in any sense you've begun to encounter the greatness of Jesus... If in any sense that has begun to register with you, then can I say be very careful what you do next. Um, I don't know where you're at this morning. You might be visiting. You might be exploring the Christian faith. You might, you might be here in the congregation as someone who's been at Christchurch Mayfair for many years. What happens if you're cornered like Pilate was? What happens if you find your allegiance to Christ, however new or faltering it might be, suddenly seems to be incompatible with self-interest of some kind. Now, here's what happened to Pilate. He just, he caved in. He finally ignored that truth that he'd been convinced of. He ended up colluding with those who hated the truth. He played his part. 
in the torture and the death of Jesus. And he's been famous for that for the last 2,000 years. This from the man who did all he could to declare Jesus innocent, did all he could to get him released. And yet when the crunch came, he put self-interest, self-preservation ahead of that truth. What is truth? He throws his hands in the air and exclaims in verse 38 and immediately walks away from Jesus, as we saw, away from any answer that Jesus might have supplied to that question. There's no neutrality that Pilate can stand on. There's no neutrality that we can stand on. The one that sees the truth about Jesus um, refuses to take sides and in doing so sides with those who hate that truth. So once you've started to realize who Jesus is, Whatever you do, don't walk away from him. Don't reject him. At my school, we had a a teacher called Mr. Starr, who was um, very, very short. And uh, you could easily mistake him for a pupil if you weren't careful enough. Um, People would occasionally come up behind him and, you know, argy-bargy and push him over by, you know, uh, or, or sort of shout something that you wouldn't really shout in the teacher's presence and then suddenly realize, oh no, it's Mr. Star. Um, and once or twice I saw people make that fatal mistake. And there was one time, um, I remember quite a new sixth former who just joined the school and started having an argument with Mr. Star in the, the queue for lunch because he thought Mr. Star had pushed in and he, he thought Mr. Star was a pupil. And um, it was several minutes into this argument with Mr. Star saying, no, no, I really am a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and you could just begin to see it dawning on this guy's face. Oh, no, I think maybe he actually is. But it took a while for that to change the way he was behaving. He carried on sort of fighting and arguing and sort of being a bit bolshy until he was sort of looking around at the others going, he's, he's not a teacher, is he? And we were going, yes, he is. <laughs> if as soon as he recognized that that was a teacher, you've got to change what you do with him. If for a second you recognize any part of the truth about Jesus, even in the tiniest way, then you can't stay neutral. You can't do a Pontius Pilate because the danger is you'll end up siding with those who killed Jesus. Now, hang on a minute. You might say there's, there's people out there who kill Christians. I know that. There's people in Iraq and Nigeria and North Korea who kill Christians, but I, I'd never do something like that. Um, there's people who, who write quite a lot of strong, maybe even hate-filled language against Christians. Some of the the, the writers in the New Atheist Movement, some of the bloggers who go out there and write against Christianity, the language is full of hate. Maybe you say, I I never do that. I, I, I quite like Jesus. I quite like Christians. I'm here this morning. They seem very nice. Um, well, maybe you do. Maybe, in a sense, you respect him. You're impressed by him. You think there's something to him and what he's claiming. Just like Pilate. Uh, And it might even be that just like Pilate, uh, you might actually fear him in a way. But it could be that um, that respect and fear that you might begin to have for Jesus could get squashed one day by self-interest. Maybe there's a danger you'll become one of those people who says, oh yeah, I I used to go to church. Um, I did a course about Jesus once. I was quite impressed by him. I, I still am really. I think there's probably something in it, but he he doesn't feature much these days in my life. He doesn't really, um, you know, I went to university, I I changed jobs, it was too uncomfortable to to stick with him. And there were people there at university who who just seemed to hate Jesus and give Christians a hard time, and I tried to argue at first, but 
in the end, I, yeah, it just seemed easier to keep my head down. Or maybe you've got a friend like I have who, on his Facebook page, has a quote from uh, French author Emile Zola, which says, um, Civilization will not attain perfection until the last stone from the last church falls on the last priest. I think he's my friend. I'm not entirely sure. Um, that's pretty close to crucify him, isn't it? Well, you know, I was once committed to church, but family came along and the kids grew up and I got involved in lots of weekend activities. There was just too much pressure to, to keep doing both. And I, I never changed what I believe, but, you know, I, I just didn't really do anything about it. Don't do what Pilate did if you see what Pilate saw. That's the warning from this passage. Let me finish with a couple of more encouraging words for those who maybe feel that danger here. Um, Jesus died as the Passover lamb. He went through with it. He was innocent, but he died in the place of guilty sinners. Guilty sinners like you and me. And whoever you are, whatever you've done, you can come back to him and benefit from that incredible gift, free gift of life that he gives in exchange for his death. So if Caiaphas, after all this happened, had turned to Jesus, he'd have been forgiven and given life. If any one of that crowd who stood outside Pilate's palace and bade and, crucif- uh, and, and shouted, crucify him, had realized what they'd done, had turned and asked Jesus to forgive him, they'd have been forgiven. And maybe some did. Pontius Pilate, well, we know nothing for certain. There are conflicting reports handed down through history about where he ended up. But at the end of the second century, a historian named Tertullian wrote that Pilate had turned to Christ and become a Christian and given in to the truth at the end. There's no certainty about that. We don't know. It's not in the Bible. What is certain is that if he did, then Jesus would have welcomed him with open arms, the same arms through which the nails went into the cross as manipulated into uh, happening by Pilate would have welcomed Pilate into life. No matter what part you and I have played in our own little way from our distance in the mistreatment of Jesus, and we've all taken part in our own ways. You have, I have, even the wonderful Milans have, the Bible assures me. The same arms that we took part in nailing to that cross will welcome us and forgive us and give us that life. That's why Jesus, the Passover lamb, died on the cross. And no amount of hatred from the religious establishment or the weak self-protection from Pilate could stop Jesus doing that for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that Jesus went through with it. Thank you so much that despite the the horrors of what was done to him, that he deliberately took himself into that arrest, that trial, that awful death, and then through the other side into resurrection so that we might have life through his death. Father, help us to delight in that if we are those who know it. Help us to explore that if we're those who don't. And Lord, please, uh, would you help us to find that life that you give so freely. In Jesus' name, amen.